Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you to hear what you have revealed in your word, we pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would draw close to us, that as Christ our Savior is exalted, that you would touch each heart and draw them to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just like a show of hands, how many people saw even a little bit of the coronation yesterday? Okay, a few people. I'd encourage you to take some time to witness, as countless millions across the globe did, the coronation of King Charles, King of England. Why, you may ask? Well, he is indeed Canada's king, so that would be one place to start. But I also would say that there is, it's important that we have a category for a, what a sovereign is. This is the last royal family in the world which still celebrates a coronation. And it's useful for us to contemplate what it means to have a real king. The display of regal majesty, gold, crown jewels and crowns, swords and orbs, oaths and ceremony, pledges of loyalty, thousands of spectators, gold silk robes, St. Edward's crown, four pounds and 12 ounces of solid gold, reserved solely for the coronation moment and the only time it will be worn until his son is crowned king. Homages and allegiance is given. And if you've seen the splendor and majesty of Westminster Abbey, it's a sight to behold. The pomp and circumstances it is called and how full of wonder and awe. Certainly the best that this world can offer. Perhaps no monarch in history has ever had such an awesome ceremony. And perhaps no monarch in history has ever had so many people on the globe witness their coronation. Yet England is a shadow of what it once was. England once was the great empire on which the sun never set. And yet, as we contemplate this latest monarch, if we would look with eyes of faith to see our Savior in Scripture, how this great display of majesty pales compared to the one we see there. Our God, who is the very ra radiance of the Father's glory, the image of the Father, the one who created all things, who created, who through whom all things were created and for whom all things were created. He is the image of God. We perceive by faith now, but amen. We who have been bought with the blood of Christ, we will see by faith our Savior crowned with glory and splendor and honor. So let us return to our passage this morning in Colossians. We'll be picking up where our pastor left off last week. I would strongly recommend to you, if you have a Bible in front of you, pick up the Pew Bible and turn to Colossians so that you can follow along. I'm not one of the new generation who likes PowerPoint during sermons. Our pastor's too high-tech for us, for me anyway, even though he's a little older than me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. 
<clears throat> and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. I would like us, as we start this passage, to have a brief recap of where we've been so far in the book of Colossians. Colossians, the called, and us today, we are called to behold your God. And after having heard of the fame of their gospel faith and love, Paul's response is one not of, of a celebration, but it's a prayerful response. He prays that they would be filled with knowledge that they would have faithful and worthy, fruitful living, fruitfulness coming from this increase of knowledge, an informed fruitfulness, you could say. And his prayer continues onwards, that they would be strengthened by God, that they would have gratitude-fueled thankfulness and endurance, enduring, knowing that they have been transferred into a dazzling inheritance, having been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the light kingdom of the beloved son. And Paul will camp here on who this beloved son is for the verses that we've heard last week and this week. Who is this son? The son through whom we have redemption by his blood and forgiveness of sins. He is the preeminent one, the sovereign, the first in rank, the son who is the perfect image of the father. Using Genesis language, the perfect image of the father preeminent over all creation. He's preeminent by virtue of his creative act. He has created all things, things which are visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. He's created those invisible things that we can't see like powers and rulers and dominions and thrones. He's preeminent because of his creative act. Everything was made through him and he is pre preeminent in the ends and the purpose of all creation. The purpose of all creation is that all things were made for him. There is indeed a great congruence and a harmony when sp uh, creation speaks of the praise of his glory. And there is a dissonance and a blasphemy when things that are in creations that were made for him are used against him and against his purposes. He is preeminent because he is before all of creation indeed as well. And he is the one that holds all things together. And now whilst this passage is absolutely true, Paul is addressing a specific situation in the church. So why does Paul take time to stress the supremacy of Christ in this way? So positively, what Paul is trying to do is that even though he has never visited the church, he says, I long for you to be built up and that we would be knit together in love and rich understanding of the wonder at the riches of the knowledge of the Father and the Son. And in the Father and the Son is hidden all wisdom and knowledge. Whilst that is positively what Paul is trying to do, he is negatively also trying to correct some issues in the church. We don't have all of the details, but we are surely given the, uh, the contours of the issues which were in the Colossian church. 
He, he warns them so that people won't come in and deceive them with, uh, with persuasive words. There were indeed persuasive words that would steer people away from the riches of the knowledge of the Father and the Son as the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He tells them in chapter 2, beware lest you be cheated through philosophical, dishonest philo uh, philosophy. He tells them again in verse 17, let no one cheat you. He tells someone even later in verse 18, don't let anyone disqualify you. Let no one tell you to abnormally or unnecessarily focus on asceticism, the worship of angels being puffed up without reason with a sensuous mind. He warns them against de descending into legalistic distractions. Oh, indeed, there is an apparent wisdom to the traditions and worship of angels and false humility. But he tells them, don't get distracted with what I've called non-gospel clickbait. Do you know what clickbait is? Clickbait is advertisement which is specifically designed to distract you from what you're searching for online. Did you know that cardiac surgeons have been secretly hiding this miracle food that if you eat it, it will eliminate all heart disease. Oh, by the way, banks have this money-making secret that they don't want you to hear about. And if you just click on this link, we will reveal all to you. I found one really funny the other week. You, it just said something general, like, you will never have issues again. And it had a picture of someone flossing their toenail. I can't imagine that I will never have issues again, even if I click on that link and figure out what to do with that dental floss. But the purpose of a clickbait is to arrest your attention and capture your click so that you go down the rabbit hole. And I don't know if you've ever clicked on those. I mean, I've maybe did it 10 years ago. And suddenly, like, 10 windows pop up. And you can't close them all fast enough. You almost need to just turn off your computer and start again. And those of you who have kids, you've learned now, maybe the hard way. You want to warn your kids, don't you? If you get an email promising you that, you know, some prince from Nigeria has got all this money, don't click on it. Don't click on the links. Don't open the Word documents. You want to tell them that, don't you? Don't click on any of the advertisements. You install ad blockers and you have special VPNs to block all of this stuff. Nevertheless, you warn your kids against this. And that is precisely what Paul is doing in the book of Colossians. He's telling the Colossian believers, there is non-gospel clickbait out there. Don't get distracted from Christ, who is the center of all of God's wisdom and knowledge. Paul continues, he wants to safeguard the gospel deposit which has been placed within them, protecting believers, reminding them that you are complete in Christ. Christ is sufficient, and in him you have your all in all. Even with all of the good uh, the reports for faith, hope, and love of the Colossian believer, Paul continues to pray that they will be filled with informed obedience and fruitfulness and in to address these distractions which are in the church he gives the gospel antidote there is a secret in fact a secret that was hidden for all of history until christ came a secret that is now revealed 
that God's riches of his glories has been displayed, and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, verse 126. You are in Christ, you are united with him. And it's towards this end that Epaphras, that great witness to the Colossian church, had been laboring in prayer, that you may be perfect and complete in God's will. Now, what is Paul's methodology as he comes to correct uh, the distractions that may have been present in the Colossian church. He does what he exhorts the Colossian believers to do. He, he lets the word of Christ ri dwell richly in him, and he admonishes and teaches them with songs, psalms, and spiritual songs. And in verse 15 to 20, we have an early church hymn, the first stanza, or the first half of which was exposed last week by our pastor. It speaks of a comprehensive and universal sovereignty of the beloved son in, into whose dominion we have been transferred. We have a king and a lord and a savior whose authority is unquestioned in a world, notwithstanding all of the, the statements which are made about the world. One statement which just floats around about the world, I don't know if you guys have heard this acronym, it's it's described as the VUCA world. Have you heard of that? Anyone heard of that? The VUCA world? V-U-C-A. A little bit of a buzzword nowadays. How the world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we acknowledge that. That is, in fact, the case. We see the brokenness of this world. In fact, we sing that, don't we? Do you see the world is broken? And what do we say? We do. In fact, we do. And yet, nevertheless, against this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, there stands our God. We have a God who holds all of history in his powerful and mighty hands. And where have we heard these words? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. Is it not from our sister Jennifer's lips, who, as she goes through the fire, exalts those great characteristics of our God? He knows all, he's everywhere present, and nothing can stay his hands. Of course, this world is volatile, but we fear not, for our God is more powerful than all. It is an uncertain world, and yet we have a sovereign Lord who knows all, and from whom nothing is hidden. Is there complexity in this world? Of course, with our small brains, we can't comprehend all that's going on. And yes, there are machinations of the enemy, and yet our God stands over that, his wisdom and power knows no end. His goodness knows no end either. And as ambiguous as this world may seem to us, our God's knowledge is unsearchable. There is a depth in the knowledge of our God, which is we cannot plumb the depths of, and nothing can be hid from the all-seeing eyes of our God. So whilst the world looks one way, let us fix our eyes on our God, who is great. And as the sermon title from last week said, we have a breathtaking king. So with all of this in mind, both with the pre-context of our passage and the overall uh, purpose that Paul had as he addressed the Colossian church, let's get to verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the original language actually has and it's there. There is even more greatness to speak about our Savior Jesus. There are inexhaustible riches of the glory of God. 
And I want you to see that what has happened between the first stanza of this hymn and the second stanza is that you have Jesus, the one through whom and by whom and for whom all things have been created. You have the creation of the world. And then you have a pause and all of history is basically squeezed in between the end of verse 17 and 18. And there is more, even with all of that, to say great things about our God and our Savior. It shows the eventual trajectory and where everything is going. It shows the end of all things. We start with creation and that exalts God, our Savior, and Jesus, his son. And now we end up in the church age at the end of history, seeing the end of all things. He is the head of the body, the church. Now the word head is used a couple of times in the book of Colossians. And it, it signifies two things. If we look in chapter 2, verse 10, it talks as Jesus being supreme over all. He's the head of all principality and powers. He's the ruler over these things. And also later on in chapter 2, verse 19, we see he is the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So he's both supreme and he's also the source of all nourishment in the body. We need to realize once again, friends, that this great God, who is the image of God himself, this one through whom all creation was made, is the life source of the church, his body. He is the one who has all authority in the church. We have an authoritative supreme head who nourishes his body. The book of Ephesians says, thanks to God for your faith and love, praying that the eyes of your hearts are enlightened to know the hope you are called to, the rich inheritance and the greatness of his power for us who believe when Christ was raised to the infinitely exalted right hand of him who sits on the throne. Having put all things underneath his feet, as we heard this uh, reminiscent of Psalm 2, he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We see again here in the book of Ephesians, actually a city not too far from Colossae, that it was the authority and supremacy of God which was on display. Now we think of God being the head of all of creation, and it can seem almost that we are sliding from the sublime to the ridiculous. Isn't this a kind of an anticlimax? He's the head of the church? Of the church? Maybe once upon a time, the church was a great and marvelous thing to behold. But now, here, Anglophone Church in Quebec? There was a time when apparently the church may have been the center of things in Western society. But as time goes on, it is slowly marginalized and relegated to an obsolete role. And yet, the church's seemingly humble and inauspicious nature is no commentary on the greatness of God. We need to remember, as the Colossians did, that they would have heard this book, probably a group of believers gathered in, the, in Philemon's house listening to the letter as it was read to them by Tychicus. We should recognize that that gathering was the one referred to as the church, as John Woodhouse shows us in his commentary. This assembly of believers might have seemed totally unimpressive. Yet, 
In fact, God's greatness is independent of those who will look with contempt on Christ's church. And yet, let us be careful. Let us stand up too and say, what eyes does the world have to make commentary on the wondrous new life that God has breathed into his church? Isn't it ironic that the world, which has dead eyes, which is dead in its transgressions and sin, can try to make a claim that the church is dead when it is the only place in all of the cosmos and creation where God's life has been breathed? It is indeed an inauspicious beginning, the church, maybe seeming like the foolishness of God. Yet, let us be careful not to imbibe too deeply that which the world says about Christ and his church. The church stands because her savior has risen. We have a head. We are the body of Christ. And even though we are hounded, we spread. And even though this church has been persecuted, it is an unbroken kingdom that has outlasted and outmatched every single empire on this planet. Who do we have for our Lord and who is the head of the church? We have the King of kings and Lord of lords, none other than the majestic Son of the Father. And it is here in this humble vessel, we, the church, members of his body, his church that God has chosen to make his dwelling place a living temple. What an immense and great calling we have as being church members. We are, we are to be a kingdom of priests and, uh, and a kingdom and priests and kings to our God and we shall rule over the earth, tells us that in Revelation 5. We are to be the custodians and regents of the new creation. See the shift. Paul has moved from the initial creation to the eventual recreation. In this new creation, there is a necessary and inextricable link to the church as the new creation. The church is caught up with Christ. The church uh, is the final destiny of, uh, of Christ's plan in creation. This should pull us to a very high view of what the church is. Let us have a high ecclesiology, a high view of what the church is. We are, we are tempted so frequently to have scorn and disdain for the church, but let us have a high view, seeing what we are called to. Pitiful and contemptible it may seem in the world's eyes, yet who are they and what is their opinion? It is little account when you consider that the majestic potentate of heaven is the one who is the very lifeblood of this church. He is the one who created all things and by whom all things were created and for whom all things created. What do we see? Challenges, difficulties, stresses, and strains. The church assailed from without and within. Yet in this dead world, God sees a barren and dead wasteland. And the only bud of life is from his church, which he has breathed. Not only it's made up of countless souls called forth from the grave, transferred from darkness to the dominion of his son, and we have his spirit within us, the first fruits of the resurrection life that we already participate in. Against all of these, uh, these ideas, Paul cautions his living, breathing body members in the church of Christ. Let not the death from outside 
come and compromise you in any way and in any way compromise your connection. Hold tightly to him who is the head, the very lifeblood of the church, Christ himself. By his precious blood, this church has been instituted and Christ himself, the co-creator, the agent in creation, the supreme head, is the head of the church. He is the beginning as well. Here we see Genesis and creation language used once again. We saw last week that Jesus is called the image of the Father, and here he is the new beginning. Again, Genesis 1 language. We have in Christ the beginning of a whole new creation, creation all over. He is the beginning of new beginnings. As some may say nowadays, creation 2.0. There's an infinitely greater creation coming, and it was what was originally planned. This isn't God's plan B. This is the ultimate uh, fulfillment and realization of God's plan that he had from the beginning. The new second creation, where in fact, every fact that it is created by him and for him, and he is the one that holds all things together, will be infinitely and more gloriously on display than it is in this creation, even though it's in, on display in this creation now. He is the beginning and he is the firstborn from the dead. We saw last week that in an Old Testament sense, He's the firstborn in that he has unique rights and prestige of the firstborn. He's the preeminent one, the firstborn, like the, uh, the son mentioned in Psalm 89. He is the final and greater Adam. He's first chronologically to rise from the dead, and he's the first numerically. He's the first one who's actually risen from the dead. He's the first fruits. Where, the, uh, where Paul in the book to the Corinthians picks up harvest and agricultural language. To say he is the first fruits from among the dead. And just in case we are thinking this idea of preeminence and first in rank is a non-biblical idea. Let's hear the words of John the Baptist himself when he baptized the Lord Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom was said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. You have to remember that John was speaking of his younger cousin at the time. Yet he says, here was someone who was before me, and because of that, he ranks supremely greater than me. In Revelation chapter 1, we see that the title of firstborn from among the dead is a title which is placed alongside one of the ruler of the kings of the earth, one of infinite authority and power. Jesus is being the first to rise from the dead is a majestic title of a Lord who is infinitely supreme. Now it continues on. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. This is the purpose why God has instituted and orchestrated all of history itself. The whole purpose of history is the exaltation of Christ and the glorification of God. It is the display of God as God. We have in preeminence the coalescence of authority, honor, and power. We have dignity and majesty, executive power, regal, majestic. He is the potentate of all power. 
And why am I trying to use this type of language? Because this type of lofty, exalted language is, is what's fitting and appropriate to one who is so high and exalted and lifted up. We have a superlative, supreme God. Now, why does God want to exalt his greatness? God is the only being that when he exalts himself, it is an act that remains simultaneously the most loving, gracious, kind, good, and wise act. No human being can exalt himself and his act remain this way. Some try, some try. I think Muhammad Ali famously said he's the greatest. And I think there was a stewardess that asked him once to buckle his seatbelt on the airplane. And he said, well, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the stewardess promptly replied, well, Superman don't need no airplane. Human greatness, as much as it may seem, fades, and the foolishness of its claims only get displayed as time goes on. Yet God, with his unsurpassed knowledge, knows what is best. And in all of eternity past, God in per was perfectly satisfied in the unity and community of the Godhead. And in the exaltation of his self, the preeminence of God is what's on display. And we realize that in God, we have the only wellspring of eternal joy, God himself. I want us to hear that again. And especially if you are young, hear this. In God, you have the only permanent wellspring of eternal joy. Every other joy you will pursue after will fade and its glory pass. Place your joy in God himself and it will be something which will unfade and only increase in magnitude and greatness. Well, an appropriate place for Paul to continue from there is the pleasure of God himself. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. We see that this great gospel and exaltation of Christ himself flows from the pleasure of the Father. We have the pleasure of God himself in the way that his son perfectly displays and images the invisible glory of the Father. And it pleased him that all the fullness should dwell in him. Verse two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is, the full, he is full and you are complete in him. Therefore, do not get led astray. Paul intentionally uses the language of fullness because he wants to protect the people from any kind of view where Jesus is some kind of partial deity. No, Jesus isn't some kind of half-baked deity. His fullness is used to address any kind of idea where Jesus is a small D deity. No, he's deity with a capital D. Now, last week, we read a section, Pastor read a section of the Nicene Creed that was composed by the early church as a response to the Arian heresy. And I want to read part of it for you today. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all worlds, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. This is a reality that pleases the Father, and indeed, this is you're coming through the wellspring and the real source of all the real joy of heaven. 
It is sad that in our days such words have become disused. And even when they're used, it's thought of as dead orthodoxy. But stand by. Hopefully these words will be coming to a church service near you soon. This fullness language also brings us back to think of the Old Testament, where God's glory filled the temple. We see this interestingly in the dedication of the temple built by Solomon. Solomon was acting in a strange capacity as a priest king, dedicating the temple. And as he dedicated, I think there were some 100,000 sacrifices that were made. God came and he filled his temple. The temple was full of the fullness of God. And what does Solomon say in response to this in 1 Kings chapter 8? He said, heavens are not enough to contain God. We have one who is the greater Solomon, who is indeed the real priest king, who is himself the temple itself. We see that in John 2. And he can con completely contain the fullness of all the deity. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have the idea of fullness as well, where the train of God's robe fills the temple. I don't know if you had a look on the coronation yesterday. You saw the the the. the train of Charles's robe and it was pretty long and the idea is that the longer the train is the more majestic the king is and the idea in Isaiah chapter 6 is that God has this immense robe of infinite length that is so big that it fills the temple completely from top to bottom this is the fullness that God has decided to place in our Lord Jesus Christ John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full, full of grace and truth. Jesus has a fullness of the deity. He's not some partial filling of deity. He's not a lesser deity. He is indeed the perfect image of God in whom the Father takes great pleasure in his perfection of image-bearing. The father looks on the son and he is pleased and he is joyful. And he's been like that since all of eternity past. And it's a great source of joy that the father doesn't exhaust the depths of and neither will we. Now when I first came to Canada, 17 years ago, people still had CRT TVs. You know CRT TVs? The TVs that were this deep. And you needed to be like a monster to carry them, you know. Huge TVs, you know. And the, the resolution on these TVs, I don't know, 320 times 280. It's tiny. It's so small. Then, you know, the technology picked up and we had, uh, you had flat screens. And then the, the thing that they kept, the, these numbers, if you don't know what these numbers are, they're just increasing the amount of information that's on the screen. They're increasing the resolution. And what they found is as they increased, you know, you got 1080 I and then P and then 4K and then 8K and then you know the resolution goes up and up and up. And what they found was, was as the resolution increased, what happened is, is that people started to see flaws on the, uh, the newscaster's face. So previously they used to put makeup and you wouldn't see this because the resolution of the screen wasn't that high. Okay? And as the resolution went up and as the image bearing capacity of the screen went up, the ability to see the flaws in the humans just increased. It's not like that with Jesus. He's the perfect image of the Father. 
And as we see more and more, and as the resolution goes higher and higher with Jesus, you don't see any flaws in the Father. You only see infinitely more greatness. He has perfect image-bearing capacity. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. And this should be a great comfort to us and a steadying effect. The perfect Father takes pleasure in the fullness, in his fullness dwelling in the Son. Now, this should serve as a real recalibration for us. Let us not be satisfied with fleeting and pitiful joys, even as Christians. Let our boasts be in that which God himself finds pleasure in, the fullness of God dwelling in Christ. Let us love the things that God loves. God loves the image-bearing capacity of Christ our Savior. Let us have joyful praise when we consider the fullness of deity dwelling in Christ. And what a God we have on display. It says in verse 20, And by him, this one in whom the fullness of God dwells, by him to reconcile to him all things by him. The reconciliation from God is God-initiated. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. The glory is that God, the infinitely great one, who has rank status, has infinitely condescended to initiate reconciliation with us. This should fill us with wonder and awe that such a great one would stoop to such depths. Now, I want you to see what happens, the reconciliation of all things, because it, there is indeed an, an extremely expansive scope of this reconciliation that is happening. Nothing less than the reconciliation with God, the, the one God which is portrayed in the initial part of this hymn, the one through whom all was made, and it's the scope of the reconciliation is that he will reconcile all things, things on heaven and on earth. It will be all-encompassing. Now, I want us to be careful here because I don't want us to miss what Paul is saying because we can easily get hung up, or hung up on what seems to be the limitation of this verse. Because as soon as we say the reconciliation of all things, we expect it to mean the reconciliation of all people and there's a universal salvation. That is not what Paul means. But we need to make care, take care that we don't get hung up on that detail so that we miss what Paul is actually trying to say. He is trying to emphasize how expansive and all-encompassing is the reconciliation that Jesus will make. Now, we know that it is not in the universal salvation that is taught clearly in Scripture. In fact, it would not make even sense of the rest of this book and the basic context and warnings that Paul issues to the, book of, uh, to the people in Colossae. But we, want, we need to see that the salvation that is presented here is a super expansive salvation and reconciliation. It, is a, it has cosmic scope. All of creation is groaning, the heavens and the earth, and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans chapter 8 tells us, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, 
by the will of him, of one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We see what will happen, the righting of all the wrongs that has created. And even as creation has been flung into frustration and confusion, all of creation, all in the heavens above and on the earth below, will be brought in submission to God. And God will be, he will be, Christ's reconciling act will be the authoritative act on which everything is judged. What is the definitive and inaugurating act that effects this expansive writing of all of creation? It is the fact that he has made peace through the blood of his cross. To us who are the blood-bought, the redeemed, the blood sacrifice on the cross is the inextricable link that we have to redemption restoration and the recreation of all of humanity, the recreation of the entire cosmos. We need to be reminded that there is indeed brokenness in, in this world. Nowadays you hear so much about climate activism and the attempts to fix all the wrongs of the past. And we need to be reminded that whilst these are admirable goals, we are not the world's savior. We cannot fix all the physical and humanitarian brokenness that is in our world, only our savior can. And in fact, the real source of all the brokenness is the fact that we are not reconciled by the blood of his cross. There is a, an inherent pride in man to elect, to try to fix and save the world that only God himself as savior can fix and save. Him who is fully divine and is the creator himself, who needs creative power and authority to fix all the brokenness. Now to those of us who have been transferred from the dominion of darkness to this kingdom of light, let us realize that peace has been made, as it says in verse 19. But now in Christ, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. The blood of Christ has led to a redeemed humanity, and this redeemed humanity will one day be re revealed. And in being revealed, we will see that there is, the whole of creation will be reconstituted, and God will stand as all in all, above all. The ultimate problem then stems to the fact that there is enmity and separation from God. And creation's necessity for recreation is... Re is mirrored in the fact that we need to have man and God reconciled. And in the reconciliation of God and man, we will see eventually the recreation of all creation. We see also that we, are, we have peace with God by the blood of his cross. Peace is made through sacrifice. Our enmity, our separation from God, has been paid for by a blood sacrifice. Our debt has been paid. So let us ponder again the greatness of him who is our peace. And let us wonder again the price that was paid for this peace, an infinite and awesome and eternal God who needed to come and suffer and die for our salvation. We need to realize that this price was born and it was absorbed willingly. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
to put him to grief. And when you have made his soul an offering for sin, you will see his seed. You shall prolong his day and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. God is pleased to reconcile man to himself. Let us see the blood of him, the one who is the fullness of God himself. Now, as I hope you have seen the greatness of God placed before your eyes this morning, I pray that the all-sufficiency of Christ is unequivocally elevated in your hearts and in your minds, that you would be safeguarded from all the non-Christ-exalting distractions that could occur both from outside our church and inside our church. Let us see in this church the wonder that God has actually started the new creation. It's been inaugurated like the conception of a baby. Can't see it from the outside, but the wonder of creation has started. This new creation has been inaugurated in the church. It is not fully consummated, but here we are, an outpost of the new creation in a dark and sinful world that needs the news of a savior. So may you be filled with the knowledge of our Lord and be encouraged to Christ-informed, fruitful living. Hear the words of John Calvin in his commentary on this passage. Be reminded that in all things, all things are in Christ, and that he alone ought to be reckoned amply sufficient by Colossians, as indeed by all Christians and us today. So I would encourage you all, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Speak of his greatness. Speak his grace to your fellow believers. Now as you depart from the building, make an effort to speak to one other brother and sister and speak something of the goodness and greatness of our Lord and Savior. In your families, go. I encourage you to pray with your children. Pray frequently. Read the words of our Lord. Exalt the excellence of our Savior before our children. Serve in this body as you go out into the world, into your workplaces, as the church goes scattered, as the very lifeblood of God himself into a dead world. Go as the savor and fragrance and aroma of Christ. For it is as we proclaim God's words that he will graciously decide to speak life where there is death. Therefore, go as ambassadors and share this great Christ whom we have and who is indeed our head and our very source of life and strength. Let us pray. Lord, we bow in honor and worship and adoration of you. You are our God. You are our Savior. We praise you. Lord, as head, as supreme authority, and as the source of all nourishment in this body, Lord, we pray that the evidence of your life would increasingly be on display in your body, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.